0: So uh, we got a call uh, three weeks after we gave that presentation in a parking lot in Salt Lake City at a a hotel that's since burned down, the City Creek Inn. And uh, they were like, can you be in Washington in a month or whenever it was? And we were like, why? And they said, you've been selected as Adventure of the Year by Nat Geo. And we went there and Andy Skirka had gotten it the year before, so he was on stage presenting and talking about you know his year of adventure of the year and then uh, looked at us and just said this will change your life and I had no idea what he meant then but it, it
1: did. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory Podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. What if you could help scientists cure cancer, or develop medicines that save lives, or find answers to some of our biggest crises that face us today? All while doing what you love doing anyway. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking about adventure and science, and how one adventurer brings the two to work together to collect data at scale. And before we get into this episode, I want you to live at scale, to adventure and truly feel alive And that all starts by heading over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and giving us a five-star review and rating. By this point in our lives, we all know that algorithms rule the world. And as such, Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts. But look, we're humans, not robots. So go show that algo that the humans are in control and rate this podcast thank you for your reviews. I do appreciate it. Today's guest is Greg Trinish, founder and CEO of Adventure Scientists. And as you'll hear, Greg founded Adventure Scientists in 2011 with a strong passion for both scientific discovery and exploration. And if helping scientists solve the world's problems wasn't enough, National Geographic named Greg an Adventurer of the Year in 2008 when he and a friend completed a 7,800-mile trek along the spine of the Andes mountain range. He was included on the Christian Science Monitor's 30 under 30 list in 2012, and the following year became a National Geographic Emerging Explorer for his work with adventure scientists. In 2013, he was named a backpacker magazine hero. In 2015, a Draper Richards Kaplan entrepreneur and one of Men Journal's 50 Most Adventurous Men. In 2017, he was named an Ashoka Fellow, and in 2018, one of the Grist 50 Fixers. Greg was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum in 2020, and is a member of their Global Futures Council on Sustainable Tourism. Oh yeah, and he hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2004. And this is his story. I am here with Greg Trinish, the founder and CEO of Adventure Scientist. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so Greg, let's just get right into it. Like, what is Adventure Scientist? Sounds really cool, but like, what is it?
0: Yeah, we're a nonprofit organization. We're based in Bozeman, Montana. And the idea here is that we want to be the world's greatest field data collectors at scale. So, we look for opportunities where we can amplify and accelerate scientists' impact uh, and getting them to solutions for the environment. Uh, so, examples of that are everything from we're creating genetic and chemical reference libraries for trees so that they can be used by law enforcement to compare uh, seizures or shipments that they think were illegally sourced with these standing trees across a range of a species. So you can use genetics to actually compare wood with trees and uh, it's being used for uh, all kinds of things. We've collected the largest data set on earth for microplastics. We've collected plant life up at 20,000 feet on Mount Everest, uh, which uh, 22,000 feet, which was the highest known plant life on earth. That is being used to inoculate crops and improve crop yields around the world. Um, so we look for these projects where there's a solution tied to it, where data can unlock some solution, and we deploy volunteers from the outdoor community to go and get those data.
1: Yeah, and, and this is the part that I think is really interesting and I want to make really clear to our listeners is that there are, there are these projects where scientists, and, and please correct me if I get this wrong because I, I want to make sure that I put it in, in simple terms, but there's these projects where scientists are like, hey, it would be really cool to grab this plant life from Everest, but there's no way that I can get up there or I'm not going there or it's restrictive, restrictive. And then there's all these adventurers who are like, I'm going to Everest or I'm going into the Amazon or I'm going down to Antarctica. And what you're really doing is matching these two parties so that adventurers can help out in this collection of scientific data wherever they're going. I mean, do I have that right? Is that the, what this, this is all about?
0: Yeah, it it is. It's a lot more detailed and nuanced than that. We spend a ton of time building these projects and and designing them. That's something that is so essential for success of the volunteers as they're out there. But yeah, at the end of the day, there's this uh, army of people who love the outdoors or traveling around the world and have a skill set that can be really useful. And we find them, we give them the mission, we train them, and then we deploy them.
1: Yeah, and as an adventurer myself, I mean, I can't think of anything greater than having a purpose behind, you know, beyond just the achievement of of whatever we do. And we like to get out and, 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 uh, and hit our goals to have a purpose and, and to be helping other, other scientists and potentially furthering uh, humankind.
0: That, that's exactly right. And, and it's the same for me when I was out on my expeditions. And the reason I started this organization is because of that. It, I had a, a selfish feeling. I felt really... When I was out hiking the Appalachian Trail, which I did in 2004, I walked the length of the Andes in 2006 through eight. And on those expeditions, I was just like, "Man, I'm spending so much time, and could be doing something much more meaningful with this time. How can I get back to these places?" And I really longed for a way that I could make a difference while I get after it. And uh, and that's what adventure scientist is.
1: Yeah, and so let's talk about a little bit. Let's go way back to to young Greg and. Have you always, as a kid, have you always had a a penchant for adventuring and science or did one come before the other?
0: I was always fascinated by wildlife and nature, like, you know, like most kids are, I think catching fireflies and woolly bugs and that kind of thing. My family didn't go camping. We didn't like, we weren't an outdoors family at all. And It wasn't until I I went on a backpacking trip when I was 16 to British Columbia to the uh, uh, provincial park, uh, Garibaldi Provincial Park there. And that was where I really fell in love with outdoors and adventure. And it was the first trip. And then, you know, I, I did some more backpacking trips and a few things. But it wasn't until the Appalachian Trail that I really had a big adventure like that.
1: Yeah, and and so you said you didn't grow up camping. What was life like for you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, East Cleveland, and a lot of mountains. Uh, no,
0: no hills. We I grew up skiing on a garbage dump, on a covered over garbage dump.
1: I did too. Uh, I grew up in Detroit, so uh, Mount Holly, Pine Knob, you know, inverted trash heaps. So that was that's how I learned to, to ski as well.
0: That's right. Ours are called Boston Mills. The the coolest adventure from my kid days was I was probably 10 years old and skiing at a place called Boston Mills and uh, Glenn Plake at the time was on his like world tour or North American tour trying to hit every ski resort across the U S and there's this run called tiger and uh, I skied it with Glenn Plake when I was like 10, which was coolest thing ever. And then uh, years later, After I had become a Nat Geo Adventure of the Year and I I met Glenn again at uh, the outdoor retailer show in Salt Lake where it was back then and he remembered me. He remembered skiing with me at Boston Mills. It was like
1: the coolest thing ever for me. That that is the coolest thing ever. I love that. And so, you know, at 10 years old, you know, skiing at Boston Mills and hanging out in Cleveland, did you think that you were going to make a life and a career out of adventure? if you would
0: have told me that I was going to do that, I had to believe I'd figure out some way to do that, but I would have been surprised that I would have chosen a life of adventure and and nature. And, you know, I, I think I was, uh, I love Jacques Cousteau and Jane Goodall. I actually have named my daughter after Jean Goodall and my son after John Muir, their middle names anyway. But back then, like, I think I, would, I saw them on TV and I, and I you know, loved that they were doing good by those animals. I used to have little statues of whales and wolves, but it wasn't like it wasn't my I didn't know I was going to go into wildlife biology or or conservation or adventure. It was cool to me, but it wasn't like Michael Jordan was cooler to me than Glenn
1: Plake at that time. Well, absolutely. Those were the days. And, yeah. uh, you know, Jordan was, was, was a figure against the the calves. And so what did you think you were going to do? Like, what was the plan? Like you're, you know, you're in Cleveland and you're, you're starting to get older. What do you, what do you, what was your plan?
0: Yeah, we're, we're going way back here. I don't know. Uh, let me think like, uh, after I got out of the like you know firefighter astronaut stage, I probably did want to be an astronaut at some point for sure. I did used to, I realized I just said that it wasn't like my obsession or anything. I did used to think wildlife or marine biologists were incredibly cool. And I did have a period of time when I said I'd be a marine biologist for sure. I don't know, a lawyer, like my dad's a lawyer. Maybe I was going to be a lawyer. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I think I always knew I would run my own business, that I would, I would, I would, probably start something or run something I never really took direction well which is what that's probably about (laughs) I definitely had a period of marine biologist. I I think that was pretty consistent I can't remember what those ages were or why even um, other than maybe tv shows about the ocean and thinking that was super cool I had a big cousin who was a surfer and maybe that was part of it I have a big cousin who's a surfer maybe that was part of it
1: I don't I don't know Yeah. You know, and uh, my father's a lawyer too out of the Midwest and all I got out of that was don't be a lawyer. That's what he always told me. He was was, was always like, don't do this. Uh, And he loved it. He was just like, ah, there's too many lawyers and go do something, go do something different with yourself. But so when you, when you left Cleveland, when you, when you, when you left high school, what'd you go do?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I actually got, uh, I went to Boulder um, and was a junior because I had gotten kicked out of a high school and started going to junior college in Cleveland when I was 16. And so I got a two-year head start and went out to Boulder as a junior and had just two and a half years there. Uh, Moved up to Breckenridge from there and started being a ski instructor, raft guide, living the ski bum lifestyle for a while. And then uh, when I went and hiked the Appalachian Trail, there was this moment that I've talked about frequently, but it, it was halfway through. And I was uh pretty low on um, just asking myself, like, what the hell am I doing out here? And worn down and it had rained for God knows how many straight days. And I just had this one moment where I picked up a rock and chucked it at a tree and just started sobbing and fell down in frustration and kind of vowed a, a life of service in that moment. That was where I really decided that I was really fortunate growing up. You know, we weren't we certainly weren't living in Bel Air or anything, but we were fine. And and my dad did well. And my mom was a teacher and did well. And I just think that living a life of um, purpose really matters. Um, And it was kind of that moment that helped me see that it had been building up to that, obviously. Um, So I went and worked in wilderness therapy and and worked with kids who had struggled. And I was, a I struggled as a teenager for sure, and was labeled an at-risk youth and all kinds of things. And so I thought that would be my passion. Um, but the more I was in the outdoors exploring, the more I, uh, I I realized how much I wanted to understand what I was seeing and understand the ecology around me. But that my passion is really for representing all those creatures that that don't have a voice and representing nature and, and wildlife and the environment, because I think it's one of the greatest atrocities what our species has ever has done to every other species on the planet. I think every other species who are here in many cases before us uh, have um, been completely disrupted by humans. And I'd, I'd really love us to find ways to live in more balance with the rest of the species on this planet.
1: Yeah. And, and getting back to that moment of frustration on the, the AT, what do you think triggered that? What, what brought that all about? Like where, where'd your life been going?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I did have the opportunity to go and spend some time in South Africa when I was a kid and I traveled a little bit and uh, just saw um, poverty um, and saw how other people live and realized that my life was not like everybody else's in the world. And uh, yeah, I even saw that in the Appalachians, right? Like in the Southern Appalachians, man, like that their, their lifestyle is different than suburbia in Cleveland. And so I just was exposed to that. And it really struck me like, man, I'm so lucky. Um, the fact that I can go hiking for six months, I feel really lucky. You know, I worked my butt off to receive up enough money to be able to pay for it and and have always had a really strong work ethic. Um, and yet I was given such a head start at life. And I think I realized that then. And, and uh, I just felt, like as I said, selfish for being out there and not doing anything beneficial. I, I was maybe inspiring a few people to get off the couch, but that, that wasn't what I meant by living a life of purpose. And I think it was a combination of exhaustion and and being out physically exhausting myself every day, mentally exhausting myself. And when you hike like that, when you're on an expedition and This is still true for me today. Is is ninety nine percent of what you're doing is just this mental gymnastics. You're constantly looking at relationships and and interactions you've had, and it's reflective by nature because you're you're just you're brought down to the core, right? Like you're depleted and you're and you're emotional, and and so it was a lot of that. Um, and it was it was thinking about that privilege combined with the um, exhaustion. I was feeling that I had a pretty low point at that moment and decided that, that what mattered to me most at that point in my life was that my life mattered and that my life was going to be about others and and not just myself.
1: Yeah. And so you had some time in wilderness therapy and I'm I'm familiar with how that works and what that's all about. And, you know for for people that don't know that's where uh, a lot of times at risk or other other kids that um are working through things go and uh and it's in a therapy environment so there are therapists and it's in and using kind of the the everything greg's just talking about getting outside and really really revealing yourself uh and figuring some things out so it's great great programs and you're doing that, but there comes a point where you and a friend go on a massive truck across the Andes. How does that come about? And what's, what's the purpose behind that?
0: Yeah, so on the Appalachian Trail, I just absolutely fell in love with, with going at a human pace. Um, you know, when you're on a bike, you got to get off that bike to go and talk to somebody. Same thing on a horse, Same same thing with really any other mode of travel. But when you're on foot, you just you're there in the moment, right? Like you're moving at the way our brains evolved to move. Um, so something about that really captured me. And then this idea of expedition travel, like long distances, you know, the Appalachian trails, Georgia to Maine, which is quite a large distance and the, the topography changes so much, the, the ecosystems change so much. So I just fell in love with that. After about two and a half years working wilderness therapy, I really wanted more of that. I really wanted um, some more personal adventure and more introspection. And, and I wanted to do it in a place where I was going to be exposed to new languages, to new, to 20,000 feet. It, it, it was, we looked all around the world, right? Like I looked at there's a long trail in New Zealand. There's this trail, the Great Divide Trail, which I'd still love to do someday up in Canada, but none of them were um, as enticing as the Andes, because the Andes was, again, 20,000 feet. The Amazon, Quechua, Myra, the Incan history that was there, Spanish, um, obviously, throughout it, the Atacama Desert really intrigued me. And it was just this, uh, there was so much. I had just finished reading Into Thin Air, which takes place in the Cordillera Waiwash, and obviously didn't want to have that kind of experience there, but, um, it was just this, this one thing after another. And then at some point, I'm sure there was just confirmation bias taking over where that was where we had to go. Um, and so I researched it and we researched it. And, and I reached out to about 10 friends. And in the end, there was just the one friend Dea, who was left, who was like, yeah, I'll go. Um, and it was, was excited to go. And, uh, yeah, we thought there would be hundreds of people doing it. We thought there would be so many, and it turns out we were the
1: first to ever do it. And and how long did that take you? And is that how then you, you were recognized as adventure of the year because you were the first to, to, to make that trek?
0: Yeah, it was, uh, 667 days or 22 months that it took us to do it straight, Uh, straight, uh, with the exception of three weeks when I came home with typhoid fever, um, to recover from typhoid fever. So I flew home and then we went right back after about three weeks. And uh, and I had other diseases along the way that probably should have come home for, but I did. So uh yeah, and, and then the recognition from Nat Geo was for that track. I don't know if it was as much because we were the first or just because of how we did it. We we kind of went down with no plan and the plan was just to go to the equator and head south, and, and we did. Um, we thought we would probably have to skip the Atacama Desert. We figured out a way to do that. We, again, didn't know we would be the first to do it. We just kind of along the way realized that nobody else had done it. There was no information about it. Um, there were three other guys who had done um, hikes um, the length of South America, Kyle B who actually did it through all the Americas and then got arrested in Russia once he crossed the Bering Strait. Um, but he had done it on, on uh, front country, really, with a cart. George Megan in the 70s had done it with a cart. And then uh, Ian Reeves had just finished it, um, hiking mostly on roads and, and known pathways. So we were the first to really do it off trail, off. We, we were on trail as much as possible. There's aren't that many trails. And we were trying to stay as close to the spine of the Andes as we could without relying on roads.
1: And so like, what happens when you're adventure of the year? Like, what don't we know?
0: <laughs> you get a call. Uh, so it happened because I gave a presentation in a parking lot at that outdoor retailer. show that I mentioned earlier for granite uh, gear, who was a sponsor, a sponsor. They, they gave us some free packs um, to me. That was a sponsor Then I wrote like 300 letters to companies and, three wrote back and that was like Catula, Steripen, and, and Granicure. So uh we got a call uh three weeks after we gave that presentation in a parking lot it's in Salt Lake City at a, a hotel that's since burned down the City Creek Inn and uh they were like can you be in Washington in a month or whenever it was and we are like why and they said you've been selected as Adventure of the Year by Nat Geo and We went there and Andy Skirka had gotten it the year before. So he was on stage presenting and talking about, you know, his year of adventure of the year. And then uh, looked at us and just said, this will change your life. And I had no idea what he meant then, but it it did. Uh, It was amazing.
1: Yeah. in what ways, I mean, I'm sure you can't say all of them, but like, like how, how did it change your life? Like, like what happened?
0: Yeah, it, you're right. Like, I can't say all because I don't know. Like, I don't know what my life would have been the other way, right? Without that. But what it did is give me access to world class explorers. It gave me a credential um, to be able to really have some momentum behind what I wanted to do and and my path from there. Um, I hadn't known that I was going to start this when I got Adventure of the Year by any means. Um, but It gave me the, um, I guess, the credibility to be able to start adventure scientists. And yeah, it was from deepening the relationship in that geo and being able to lead expeditions around the world to having some public uh, awareness about what we had done, being featured in magazines and stuff like that really gave us the... The, again, the opportunity to then go out and get additional sponsorship to do biological expeditions, which we started doing after that. And it just, it was just opportunity.
1: It was a stepping stone for sure. A common question I get all the time is Mark, can you help me with our brand? Yes, we help companies solve branding problems. And the first step would be to schedule a no-obligation brand clarity call. We'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. We'll get you booked right away. So whether you're just getting started with a new business, or whether you've done some work and need a refresh, or whether you're a brand that's high-performing and wants to stay there, we can help. After you book your brand clarity call, you'll learn about our brand audit and strategy process. We'll identify if you need a new logo or just a refresh. We'll determine if your business has a branding problem and you'll see examples of our work and get relevant case studies. We'll also see if branding is holding your business back and can help you get to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Build the brand you've always dreamed of. Again, We'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. Now back to the show. Yeah, and that's, that's a great segue. So like what was the impetus or the inspiration or the light bulb moment for adventure scientists? Because you're, you're, things are going good, right? Like why, why, why start this business?
0: Yeah, so I totally could have, I think, just continued get doing mega expeditions and, and live that life. And that would have been incredibly fun. But as I said, like purpose was what really mattered to me. And in the Andes, you know, ostensibly we were, we were trying to learn about sustainability and and we're really passionate about human sustainability. Even then, you know, we learned a lot. We we saw people who had been living with traditional methods of life uh, of agriculture and, and, solar cookers and all kinds of things. We learned a ton there um, how to treat water with just a pop bottle, throw it up on your roof and UV light works like pretty cool. So uh, there was some purpose there and and we had hoped to share some of the lessons we learned. I think we were in our early 20s and, and still looking to adventure and a little naive as to how real change happens in the world. But Anyway, on that trip, I I was asking myself, like, what's next and and really fell even deeper into the ecology space and thought I would work with lions and learn how to save lions some way. And wrote a professor, Scott Creel, who's here and and asked if I could come study how to save lions with him and uh, came up here and started working on my second degree, which was in wildlife ecology and uh, started before I ever made it to Africa with Scott, I, I started tracking lynx and wolverines and grizzly bears here. Um, so I'd go out on my boss's truck and take his snowmobiles out and would park them at uh, as far as we could go. And then I'd hop on my skis and I'd go for two or three days following wolverine tracks and documenting their behavior and collecting DNA samples. Uh, and it was awesome. Um, what a fun trip. Or or project really, uh, and then we were. I started working on uh, owls in California, and I worked with other species, and uh, just really felt like I was making a difference and using my outdoor skill set to do it. Uh, and my outdoor skill set. Let's be clear. I'm not a world class climber. I'm not a. I'm not really good at any sports. I just have persistence and creativity and optimism, which it's so translatable to the business world and what i do now. but anyway, yeah, i was doing those things and and feeling good about it, but it just occurred to me that if we could rally others who love the outdoors and get them to do it, the impact would be so much bigger. i had also been taking biological expeditions, so i worked with some scientists um in the course of my degree, i actually used it for part of my degree and uh, developed a protocol to put my brain in the in the headspace of a grizzly bear or a wolverine and make decisions like they would make as they moved across large landscapes. And so I walked from the eastern end of Yellowstone to the western end of Idaho, which is about 600 miles in a month, and uh, tested these least cost path analyses or predictions on how wildlife will move across the ecosystem and documented how many fences they have to cross and got a lot of information that way and then went on to do expeditions in Mongolia tracking wolverines and and uh, I just saw that that there was this real opportunity to mobilize people who wished there was a way they could give back or thought it would be cool to do that at least maybe they didn't have the same selfish feeling I did but they thought it would be meaningful and cool to do that. And then I was doing these things as a scientist that I didn't know much about, like it didn't take seven years of training to learn how to track owls. And it didn't take seven years of training to learn how to identify Wolverine tracks. So I just knew that, that, that possibility was there. And I Googled, how do you start a nonprofit? And, uh, reached out to Conrad Anker, who's one of the world's greatest mountaineers here in Bozeman. And he said he joined my board. And then it was just one thing after another. With Conrad, I was able to get Celine Cousteau and John Bowermaster and, and uh, Ross Savage, who's the first person to row across all three oceans and first woman to row across the Pacific and Atlantic. And, and I just got these heroes of mine together and, and started doing it. Started figuring out how do you run a nonprofit. It's
1: incredible, and and I, I want to pick that up there. But as we're talking, it also really dawned on me, and and you may have a different definition than most people of two words. And and so I'd like you to think about like how do you define adventure or an adventurer, and then how do you define science or a scientist because. You were just talking, like to me, a scientist is someone with a bazillion years of training and they wear a lab coat and they, you know, and they do all this stuff, but clearly you found sort of a different definition.
0: Yeah. So adventure, first of all, like, I think it's more traditional than, than not, I don't know. Explorer is a different term and, and is pushing any boundary in my mind. Um, but adventurer is, is, I don't know, pursuing passion in the outdoors. It's, it's like. It's certainly outdoor sport based, but that can be hiking for some people and and just like adventuring into a a place you haven't been before to look at birds. Or it can be climbing peaks and and skiing down them or whatever. Um, Yeah, it's pushing your own boundaries in the outdoors is my definition of adventure or adventurer. People who volunteer for us are everything from day hikers to world class climbers. Um, So it's, it's... a huge spectrum. Scientists are scientific, you know. I do think it takes training. I do think it takes um, method uh, and following a scientific process. But man, there are field technicians, which is what I was um, a field technician that are doing real science and really important science. And our volunteers are doing science and really important science. So would they call themselves scientists? No. Would a lot of people allow me to call myself a scientist? Absolutely not. No way. Any PhDs who are listening to this, like, I get it. You guys are scientists. I am a wannabe for sure. But uh, it's like I hang around a lot of scientists and I've learned a lot about science and how science works and, 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 yeah, it's exploration, right? It's it's under it's pushing boundaries. It's looking at things with a new lens. It's looking at things with innovation and technology and entrepreneurial spirit behind it. You know, at the end of the day, I'm not really an adventurer. To most, I'm an adventurer, but uh, I'm not a scientist. I am an entrepreneur. I'm a community organizer. I bring people together with a common purpose and a common goal, um, and make sure they have the skills that they need to be successful. In order to go out and pick up animal scats so that a Harvard medical school can research or can look at them for antibiotic resistance, you don't have to be a PhD. You have to know how to identify a scat, like say this is poop. You don't even have to know whose poop it is. And you have to be trained how to properly pick it up so you don't contaminate the sample. That's not rocket science. It's important. It's meaningful. It's contributing to science. But, you know, so you're a citizen scientist or a community scientist. You're not a you're not a Ph.D. Nobel Prize winning scientist for doing that,
1: though. No. And, and, and I wouldn't make that assertion. Right. But the the idea that we can be additive that we can use our day hiking, our adventures, these things that, you know, I, I have the same feeling. I feel selfish sometimes when I'm up in a helicopter or going to a mountain or, you know, doing whatever. Yeah. It's, it's a really an amazing opportunity. And, you know, a moment of confession, my 11-year-old daughter and I last night, we were doing a uh a word game around poop. You had to say a different word for poop. And Scat was one that, you know, I had that helped to stump her. But it think that, you know, us having this like, you know, how many words can we come up with poop? Uh, that we could go out and be additive to a Harvard medical researchers project is, is really empowering yeah. and, and really amazing. So when you started this business, you Googled it, you got Conrad Anchor, you got some other famous people to to help be your board and give you some visibility. I mean, was it an immediate success? Did it take off or what happened?
0: Yeah, it was pretty cool. Like, So that was in January or February, maybe. Um, No, it was was late January. And then by May, uh, we had collected the highest known plant life on earth um, up at 22,000 feet. And we started, that got a bunch of press. And then it was like one thing after another. There was people rowing across the Arctic Ocean and we met up, we connected them with a a researcher looking at whale olfaction and uh, plankton um, and trying to understand how whales track plankton. And then we we had projects that would just build. Back then, it was actually the adventurers who were saying, like, I'm going here, I'm doing this, I'm I'm going there. What do you have for me to do? And then I would find a researcher and put them together. We realized after some time that the impact there is tough. You've got these one-off expeditions in many cases, yeah, you, you get some great samples for a scientist. But what we do now is everything's driven by the scientists. So the scientists come to us and they say, I need samples from here. I need this many samples over this period of time. And the real value proposition is scale. They, they can't get the temporal or spatial scale that we can get and certainly access to these places too. But there's a lot of scientists. Scientists go into this because they love the out, or these field scientists do. Science is a huge, huge category. Obviously, uh, everything from solving the pandemic to field biologists studying tree kangaroos in, in Papua New Guinea. But so a lot of them do have outdoor skills. Um, but the reality is, is you can go to one peak and you raise a ton of money to be to be able to do that. You get a grant to be able to do that, and it's forty thousand dollar expedition to go climb one of these Himalayan peaks and. What we do is it's like, oh, you need data from every 8,000 meter peak on the planet or in in the Himalaya, you need data from everything above 6,000 meters on the planet. It's just not possible any other way. And so when we flipped it and started being scientist driven, the impact really became clear and and what this organization can be really started to
1: crystallize. Yeah. And what is your sort of Day to day in life, like as the CEO and founder, are you just off on expeditions, hanging out, like just you know hanging off a mountain, being cool, or like what's what's your day to day like?
0: Yeah, um, no, <laughs> uh, I I am doing. I I try to do at least one awesome adventure every year, and and I have two small kids, so um, admittedly have have slacked at that a bit. i am headed to do Alaska on a 10-day packraft this year in the Brooks Range. But those are the exception. Uh, those are the most fun parts of my job for sure. I raise money. I uh, manage a team. I set vision and strategy. Uh, I work on developing new projects and finding leads, working with our networks through the World Economic Forum or TED or National Geographic to come up with new projects and, and what's going to be the most impactful. I work with our donors uh, on understanding the opportunities that their connections could provide on, on partnering with them to build these projects and actually get them off the ground. I spent a lot of time managing the team and dealing with the, the ups and downs of that. And... Uh, yeah. And, and thinking strategically about what's next, what the chess pieces are, and what the moves are um, that are going to help grow this organization and, and help it reach its potential.
1: Yeah. And so, is there anything that you didn't share that reveals, like, what's hard about this? Like, what's hard about running a nonprofit that not only just a nonprofit, but that one that it deals with kind of this idea of adventure and science and putting it all together? Like, what, what's hard about this thing?
0: Yeah. There's the kind of the, the, basic layers of everything that any business owner or entrepreneur deals with, right? It's like, you got to sell your idea. You got to market your idea. You got to have proofs of concepts. You have to, you know, have go to market strategy and, and all of this. Um, so it's those basic things for sure. I think nonprofit, um, is not always taken as seriously in the business community. I think there's challenges with that, um, Yet we have a fee-for-service revenue stream too. So I've had to build out the business model and the business as well. We also have philanthropic support, um, which has been essential to our success. Um, with, a, with a for-profit, you take on investment in, you know, and, and debt really to get it off the ground. You can't do that with a nonprofit. You can't sell equity in the company. And so you have to be profitable from day one. That's a huge challenge you have to be in the black every year um, unless you've got a reserve fund, which we now do, but you've got to build that up. And it's taken a decade to be able to even think about spending more than we make in a year. Um, So that's a huge challenge. I think that the the competition with for-profit for getting talented individuals is real, you know, by being able to take on that debt, you can offer bigger salaries right away. It's hard to compete with those salaries, though. I'm really proud of what we can offer our staff now, but it's taken a long time to get there. I I, I spent the first nine months doing this, uh, selling bumper stickers. So I would like, I brought those three letter, like BZN bumper stickers to Bozeman and nobody was selling them here. So I'd print off a bunch and then I'd walk around to the people who sell bumper stickers and I'd say, hey. You know, I didn't tell them this, but it was, hey, I just bought these for 30 cents. Do you want them for a dollar? And they would sell them for four dollars. And it was like, that's how I had enough money to eat. Um, So it took starting the second business to be able to do that. And I didn't pay myself until probably September of that first year. And that was eight bucks an hour. Um, So it was it was a long slog to do that. And then I think by March, I was able to hire my first employee, so it's it's been slow incremental growth and you know it's no different than adventure and, and expeditions too like
1: the,
0: the cool thing about expeditions for me is not like this like ooh, adrenaline seeking that's not my type of expedition it's it's persistence it's creativity it's problem solving it's you're in this shitty situation how are you can get yourself out um, and it's avoiding those situations to begin with I think that is exactly what running a business is it's looking ahead and and coming up with where you're headed and and your route or your strategy. And and it's avoiding pitfalls and, and trying to see around corners. And then inevitably, you're in shitty situations that you didn't foresee. And it's using creativity, optimism, and persistence to navigate around those things and keeping a clear head while you're doing it and making sure that you're looking at all options Getting advice where you can, Um, you can't always do that on expeditions, but um, you you can sometimes And, uh, and looking at people who have been there before you so that you're not reinventing the wheel all the time. So it translates really well.
1: Absolutely. And you must be doing something right because if I'm doing the math correctly your business is coming up on 10 years or did you just celebrate 10 years of of yeah
0: january this year was our 10th anniversary uh and we're using the whole year to celebrate
1: our 10th year so congratulations that's an amazing accomplishment most businesses don't make it to like year two so to make it to to 10 years is huge so 10 years for adventure scientists what you you mentioned a big part of your your job is thinking about the future thinking about the future vision Mm -hmm. what what's next what's the future for adventure scientists what's that look like
0: yeah we we want to be the greatest data collectors at scale on the planet, and uh, we've got some work to make that true. Um, we want to gain experience internationally and and are exploring projects uh on in many different fields, but in timber and and in uh, uh, wildlife connectivity and in agriculture, and really helping to improve crop yields using natural uh, nature-based solutions is is the field. And we're looking at, at how to really do that. Listen, this organization and what we've built here has incredible potential to accelerate impact, accelerate the ability for our species to operate with less impact, with less negative impacts on the planet. And I I there's this line in in a Bronx Tale, which is a great movie from God knows when in the 90s, I think. And uh Robert De Niro's in it and He's talking to his son and it's Kologelo. There's nothing worse than wasted potential. And, and that's what this organization is. isn't certainly not wasted potential, but so much potential. And it's, I just look forward to the future of us um, becoming a real resource for problem solvers to, to get there quickly, more quickly than they otherwise would. And we're, we're already there. And It's important to recognize the accomplishments already and it's important to recognize that we've had a tremendous impact on on a number of different fields from antibiotic resistance to microplastics to improving crop yields to uh, helping to restore and preserve species that are uh, extirpated from ecosystems. And it's been amazing what we've been able to accomplish in 10 short years and I'm so proud of our impacts uh, that we've already had. But I'm always thinking about how we do that on a bigger scale and and how we make sure that the data we've collected and the data we will collect are going to have as much impact on as many lives, human and otherwise, as possible.
1: Yeah. And so with that in mind, if people want to help you collect data at scale, how do they get involved? How do they learn more about adventure scientists?
0: Yeah. AdventureScientist.org is a great place to go. We're on all the social media channels on Adventure Scientists uh, as well. You know, we need a lot of people. This is a movement and we need a lot of people working together to make it happen. It's the volunteers. Absolutely. If, if you like being in the outdoors, we don't always have a project everywhere on Earth. We, we are working towards that and hope for that to be true at some point. Um, But we have great opportunities to use your outdoor skills to to further a number of different fields. And uh, we need money to do what we do. Um, We need that through um, philanthropy and and also through projects. If you're a scientist who could benefit from data collection at scale, uh, reach out to us, talk to us. We also really need a lot of business acumen that, like I said, we're, we're building the fee for service revenue stream at the same time that we're learning how to market our, our overall mission and, and overall organization better, as well as marketing these projects better. So we need support like that as well, advice um, and, and connections. So uh, we welcome everybody to come and reach out through the website and uh, I'm at, greg at AdventureScientist.org,
1: So people can email me as well. Fantastic. And we'll make sure to link to all those resources in the show notes. So it makes it really easy for people to click and be able to, to contact you and either volunteer, donate or, or help in other ways. So Greg, as we come to the end of our time here, I'd love you. And I, we kind of touched on this, but I'd love you to think back to that, that young version of yourself who was skiing at eight years old and living in Cleveland and, you know, What do you think he would say if he saw you today?
0: I can say, cool, do more. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. He'd say that's pretty cool, man. I, I think he would be proud of me. You know, more importantly, I think I've got an amazing wife and two amazing kids and, uh, the organization is, is great. Um, but I think that those other things matter as much to me and, and my family, my, my parents are still with me and I'm amazing. And my brothers, my little brother just had a baby two days ago and I'm really close with both my brothers. And I think those are the things that matter as much to me as anything I've built at work. And it's just one part of a much broader picture for me. So I think, He would be proud that all those things are true for me today, too.
1: And that is Greg Trinish, founder and CEO of Adventure Scientists. I love this idea that we, as those that love the outdoors, can help contribute to science by doing what we love. And I want to stress that you can be an Everest mountaineer or a day hiker or anything in between, an Adventure Scientist probably has a project for you. And congratulations to Greg and the entire team at Adventure Scientists as they celebrate their 10th anniversary this year. Here's to 10 more, 10 more years of creating impact. This is truly the entrepreneurial spirit, rewriting the script and impacting our world. A big thank you to Greg Trinish and the team at Adventure Scientists. We will link to all things Greg and Adventure Scientists in the show notes. If you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, like Greg, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. A lot of big stories, and I cannot lie, you other storytellers can't deny.